Walton Glass is an unassuming little town nestling on the banks of the River Slaney in south west County Wicklow. But for a month, almost 70 years ago, this small town entranced the world's press and helped to topple the government. On the morning of November the 23rd, 1950, a letter arrived, as you'd suppose it might, into Bolton Glass Post Office. But this letter was addressed to the sub-postmistress herself, Miss Helen Cook. It was from the Minister for Posts and Telegraphs, and it was to inform her that despite the job being in her family for three generations, she was being sacked. But Miss Cook was not a woman who would go down quietly, and the Battle of Bolton Glass was about to begin. Being the school holidays, I spent probably about two and a half weeks there. Helen Cook's niece is a woman called Maureen Watts. That was the year after I was adopted. She was the adopted child of Helen's sister. Maureen is now 86 and remembers in great detail coming from her home in the UK to spend long holidays at the post office in this heretofore sleepy town. To me, looking back, I thought it's like a four-street village with a winding road. It had a marsh at the top and it had a big a mill, huge mill opposite the uh, post office. The outside, they had it like a, a van that was, a green van was where they took the parcels and the letters. Um, the inside, it was, a, it was so, to me, it was so small, you could hardly swing a cat in it. And she had girls working there on the uh, switchboard. On that morning, not only had Helen Cook been sacked, but a local draper, 27-year-old Mick Farrell, had been appointed. The post office was to be moved to his premises, and given the size of the town, as local historian Paul Gorry describes, Helen Cook and Mick Farrell were literally within spitting distance of each other. This is the house that the Cooks lived in and ran the post office from, uh, just opposite the mill. This is basically uh, where the post office had been for for decades before the battle. It's just, what, maybe 200 yards from where uh, the Farrells lived, so the, the Cooks and the Farrells were, were very close neighbours. And uh, you just look up the street and you would see the other premises at the corner at the top of Mill Street. The man who gave Mick Farrell the job was James Everett, the Minister for Posts and Telegraphs. A television documentary in 1996 recorded the voices of many who remembered the sequence of events, including Liam Kavanagh, Minister James Everett's nephew. It was totally political, there's no doubt about that. But as I say, there were very few things you could do for supporters at the time, but this was certainly one of them, and it was a common practice to find the sub-post office move from one premises in a town to another because of the political allegiance of the particular person. It may have been the norm for the day, but for many residents of Bolton Glass, it was never going to wash. Nuala Ryan recalled the events. It was an injustice, because remember, she sacrificed an awful lot to come there to look after the old aunt, and she was really working it. While the aunt was still employed, she was really doing the work. Then suddenly, it, the word got, came, it was gone, it was going up to fires, and it went around the town like wildfire. Said Everybody said, we're not having this. The battle lines could not have been simpler. Mick Farrell was the son of the minister's supporter and the man who had been chosen to take charge of the post office. Helen Cook's family had run it for three generations and she was in no mood to hand it over meekly to some government appointee. 
Some in the town still remember Helen as someone who was never to be trifled with. I'd say she was about five foot two, eyes of blue, with grey hair and a nice brown streak going up through her hair. <laughs> she had, cause she seemed to be um, a chain smoker. She always had a cigarette in her mouth. Beyond seeing her behind the counter in the post office, I never, ever saw her out on the street, in a shop, in the church, anywhere. I, as an 11-year-old, absolutely afraid of her, terrified of the woman. That was it. Only she was a small woman should eat you. <laughs> if you hadn't everything perfectly right, you would go in for it now. That's the way it was. Yeah. She was a tough lady. I'd say she'd have made a great politician. Minnie's an argument she used to have, uh, and she, she always came out on top. Helen Cook looked for local support, and sure enough, a public protest meeting was arranged four days later by one of the leading lights of her campaign, a man by the name of Bernie Sheridan. One of the earliest journalists to arrive in Bolton Glass was a Canadian called Lawrence Earl. Earl later wrote a book about his time there. His book was seen as kind, to say the least, to Helen Cook. And one of his earliest accounts is of Bernie Sheridan fitting a loud hailer to his car and driving through the town rallying support. He fitted the loudspeaker and microphone to his Austin and drove back to Baltinglass, touring the streets of the village and the surrounding district. Snow had fallen lightly the night before, and the roads were slippery for driving. There was the harassing nip of frost in the air, and a chill mist hung over the village. This is Baltinglass calling, he said, a call signal which was to become as familiar as a good morning in the weeks to come, all over era. A protest meeting in connection with the appointment of sub-postmaster in Baltinglass post office will be held on Monday, November 27th at 8 p.m. He repeated the message over and over again. The meeting was chaired by a local landowner and decorated war hero, Major General Meade Dennis. Dennis was a member of the Protestant aristocracy, a Cromwellian rancher, one of Farrell's supporters called him, stingingly, later. It didn't take long for news of events in Bolton last to start humming through the national and international press wires. The facts of the case are simple. When the old lady who had run the post office for a great many years resigned, the vacancy was advertised in the ordinary way, and everybody in the town took it for granted that the post would be given to the old lady's niece, Miss Helen Cook. But to the general amazement, the post was not given to Miss Cook, who was thereby deprived of her living. Picket continues at Bartinglass. Picketing continued at Cook's post office, Bartinglass, yesterday. Today is Old Age Pensions Day, but it was not known in Baltinglass last night at which post office the pensions would be paid. Once in a generation, perhaps, anger at the revelation of a wrong done to an individual by the state takes so firm a hold on the country's imagination that nothing will satisfy its citizens until the wrong has been put right. Dreyfus was one sufferer, young Archer She another, and now in Ireland we have our Helen Cook. And if there is something of the ludicrous about the Battle of Bolting Glass, 
In November of 1950, the Irish government was delicately balanced. It was a rainbow composed of five political parties, dependent on the support of a handful of independents. It would not take much to destabilise it. The Taoiseach was John A. Costello, and the man who wrote that letter to Helen Cook was the Minister for Posts and Telegraphs, James Everett. As historian Michael Kennedy explains, the government had one crucial lacking, experience. Costello as Taoiseach really has to bring these five parties and the independents who support them in the Doyle together. He has to look after them and do things that the Taoiseach maybe wouldn't have done up until then. Many of his cabinet had no experience as ministers. Sean McBride in external affairs, Noel Brown, uh, Everett, James Everett himself didn't have any experience as a minister before he took posts and telegraphs. And as a result, by late 1950, the government is beginning to show its fractures. And one of these is seen through the events in Balding Glass, that it really brings the difficulties that the Doyle, the cabinet, the government, the Taoiseach and his various ministers are facing. And it begins, if you like, the disintegration of the government. And I think what Bolton Glass shows is a perfect storm for an inexperienced government. Post offices in towns like Bolton Glass in the 1950s were the hub of the community. All communications, telephone calls, post and telegrams came through the postmaster or mistress, and they were held in high esteem. But this was 1950s Ireland. Moral codes were black and white and judgment was harsh. Helen's support was based on her being beyond reproach. But all this while Helen harboured a solemn secret. Helen Cook's niece, Maureen Watts. I slept in a room that faced onto the main road. Very nice room. They had uh, beds outside in cu- with cubicles around where the people that worked in the post office sometimes stayed and then Helen's was at the back. I couldn't read, I couldn't write, I was eight. I thought I was adopted at eight years of age, but I wasn't officially adopted then, I was adopted at 14. But more of that later. A week after Helen Cook got the bad news, a crew of men arrived from Dublin to install a new switchboard in Farrell's premises, which was to be the new post office. They began digging a trench along the street in the direction of Helen Cook's home. Events were heating up in Bolton Glass. A new cable needed to connect with a junction box located beneath a concrete slab outside Helen Cook's front door. This crude-looking square of concrete became highly symbolic. The slab was the epicentre of the Battle of Bolton Glass. If they couldn't dig it up, they simply couldn't connect all of the crucial wires and cables to Mick Farrell, the new postmaster. At three o'clock on the afternoon of Thursday, November the 30th, a wave of excited indignation swept from the crossroads at Mill Street and Main Street and roared through the village. An engineer with a gang of ten linesmen from the Department of Posts and Telegraphs had arrived in Baltinglass, packed tightly in a lorry. They parked the lorry outside Farrell's drapery shop and public house and piled out, carrying pickaxes and shovels and bags of other tools. At once, they began to dig a trench, one foot wide by two and a half feet deep and 30 yards long. The trench led across Mill Street and up the Main Street pavement into the Farrell shop at the point where Michael Farrell's new post office was to be located. 
Members of the protest committee supporting Helen Cook were not long in responding to these intruders who meant to literally disconnect her from her livelihood and hook Mick Farrell up to his new role. They headed for the infamous slab. When the Post and Telegraph linesmen arrived at the slab, they found it occupied by a group of angry pro-Helen Cook supporters who would not be moved. The Post and Telegraph linesmen abandoned their task, temporarily defeated. The slab became the focal point of interest. Snow was threatened, yet despite the weather, protesters maintained a stubborn vigil there. Soon there were opposing marches in the town. The Cook faction wanted the post office to remain where it was with Helen as postmistress, and the Farrell supporters believed young Mick Farrell was the best man for the job, a fresh and friendly face. Torchlit marches and black flag demonstrations rang out along the streets of Baltonglass. Those public protests, well, they must have seemed exciting to some, but for many businesses in the town, the marches had repercussions. There was a protest one evening uh, where they went around to all the shops and told them to close, from, not asked them, but demanded that they close for a torchlight procession that they were going to have through the town, and they wanted all the shops closed in support of that, and Dad refused to do so. Paul Gorry's father owned a chemist shop in Baltonglass. He was boycotted after that for several weeks because he wasn't going to support their protests, so therefore he was against them as far as they were concerned. Pat McGrath's family owned the Bridge Hotel and were also drawn into the dispute. They supported the Farrells and were strongly opposed to Miss Cook's campaign. They went round the shops telling people to everybody close their doors and turn the lights off so the torchlight procession would look much better, you know. And Daddy and Uncle Pat both refused. They had the shops open, the lights on. The split tore right through the entire social fabric of the town. Joey Fagan was 11 years old at the time. I was in the Boy Scouts, the local Boy Scouts. My father was for Michael Farrell. The Scoutmaster was for Miss Cook. So my father said, you're not going to the Boy Scouts. I said, why? I'm just telling you, you're not going to the Boy Scouts. So I was taken out of the Boy Scouts because my father was for Michael Farrell and the scoutmaster was standing down protesting for Miss Cook outside the shop there. Although they had a connection to the local TD, James Everett, the Farrells had been in Bolton last for as long as anyone could remember. They ran a shop and pub and were well-liked within the community, as local man PJ Hanlon recalls. Mrs Farrell had a drapery and grocery and bar. They were most generous people that you could meet they're not so much for the people who bought us, the poor people but the more fed them and clothed them and and most of it they were never paid for oh at home, she she never looked for it The Farrells were regarded fondly for their kindness to those down on their look but the rallying cry of the Cook side was simpler and more powerful if we allow the government to push around the people of Baltonglass today they'll do the same to every small town in the country tomorrow Had it been dealt with differently, it wouldn't have blown up into something that had all-Ireland consequences and all-Ireland resonances. Historian Michael Kennedy. Because what was happening to Helen Cook resonated across the country. It could be me. 
the post office is the centre of, of local life in so many villages. And the centre in Dublin, in the Doyle and in government buildings, didn't seem to realise it or didn't want to realise it. Everett couldn't understand what was happening in Baltinglass. James Everett, the Minister for Posts and Telegraphs, might have been distracted, but the Cook Protest Committee were keeping their eye very much on the ball. General Meade Dennis, in true military style, formed an intelligence unit to second-guess any surprise attack that might be launched against them. Bernie Sheridan, a vocal Cook supporter and the man who had earlier attached a loudspeaker to his car, set up an air raid warning siren at his house and arranged for the mill bell to toll should a surprise attack be launched. Globally, there was no shortage of headline news. The international papers were filled with the events of the Korean War and a nuclear option to end that conflict was being considered by President Truman. And yet, despite all this sensation, representatives from the world's press were arriving in Bolton Glass daily. By Monday, newspaper men titillated by the skeleton reports of a mountain village standing brashly up against the government of era began to arrive from London. During the eventful week, reporters and photographers streamed into Baltinglass from daily papers, weeklies, and the news agencies. The London Office of Life sent a photographer, heavily equipped with cameras, flashbulbs, films, and instructions. The editors rubbed their hands and waited for more. For here, in a dry spell, was an oasis of human interest, a story of the common man, or woman, for the common man. But they did not consider, as editors don't, the discomforts and hardships of the men they had sent into the field for the story. Baltinglass was neither prepared nor equipped to accommodate the sudden influx of visitors from the press. There were a few rooms over the Ivy restaurant, it was true. Rooms without central heating or citified conveniences. And the newspaper men, cursing the ups and downs of their calling, took them and pretended to smile. By the first week of December 1950, the weather worsened. The slab in front of Helen Cook's door was slippery with ice, and from the east a snowstorm was threatened. If the Dublin government would not listen to the residents of Baltonglass, then perhaps the residents of Baltonglass should take the fight to the Dáil in Dublin. This from the front page of the Irish Times, 7th of December 1950. Dáil uproar over dispute in Baltonglass. A large number of people from Baltinglass last night heard Mr. Everett, Minister for Posts and Telegraphs, defend in the Doyle his decision to appoint Michael Farrell as postmaster. The debate was one of the stormiest in the House for many years, and the Deputy Speaker called repeatedly for order. The Minister was accused of dirty, low-down, mean corruption, and at one period, while he was answering a question on the subject, Mr. Everett could not be heard for the remarks being shouted across the floor. Withdraw that statement. I will not withdraw that statement. He denied it at question time today. You, Mr. Everett, lied against your predecessor today. You're a dirty, low-down rat. If I go across there, you will... Take your medicine now. Take the answer now you're getting it. I want no explanation. Send for the guard. The deputy must leave the house. It's time to have a showdown with you too. I will name the deputy. I do not care whether you do or not. You are a partisan and have been a partisan for the past three years. 
You are a political hack for the time you've been in that chair. We will not stand for disrespect of the chair. No, listen to Punch's pilot. Deputy Smith should leave the precincts of the house. Oh, you put me out! Deputy Smith has not left the precincts of the house. Call the sergeant at arms. Events in Bolton last now began to strike at the very heart of government. The fragile coalition needed at least two independent votes to carry on, and one of those, Paddy Cogan, threatened to remove his support. The perfect storm was gathering. The government was now under threat and had to put an end to this nonsense immediately. Back in Bolton last, the Cook faction learned, through their intelligence sources, that a surprise attack was imminent. It was planned for the 11th of December, 1950. Helen Cook's cable was to be severed. At 7.15 on the morning of December the 11th, the air raid siren sounded across the skies of Bolton Glass. Despite the sleet, despite the snow, a solitary bell-ringing town crier ran through the streets, alerting the townsfolk to ready themselves for the coming invasion. It was to become a day that lasts in the memories of those who experienced it. From everywhere around the town. They just came from all over the place and the guards, it was like a battlefield now. Well, the people all start going in on top of them and the guards trying to hoosh us all back. Earl records the memories of Helen Cook's loyal lieutenant, Bernie Sheridan. I kept watching the road, waiting, with a tight feeling in my throat. I was sure now that I heard motors in the distance, but getting louder. At five minutes to eight, somebody says in a high voice, Here they come! It was the first of the police. Two carloads of them and one radio car. I forgot about the sleet and the cold and why the tense look on their faces, so did everybody else. A moment later, two lorries and more cars followed. Good God, a voice said behind me. They're sending an entire army of men to do their job. There were about 70 Gardaí in all. Chief Superintendent W.P. Quinn from Bray, the head of the Gardaí for all of County Wicklow, got out of the leading car a big, stout, weather-beaten man, wearing a look of combined disappointment and surprise. He had good reason for this, and I could guess what was troubling him. He was wondering how it was that there should be a Baltinglass crowd to meet him and his army of men when the whole operation had been planned as a deep secret behind locked doors, and indeed he had expected to find all of Baltinglass still snoring away in bed. Joey Fagan was an 11-year-old at the time, he was at school the day he heard the Gardaí had arrived in town. In our time going to school, uh, we'd have one or two guards on the street, maybe one guard in the street for a week or something like that. And now there was 25 or maybe 30 guards in the town. But then because we heard about the guards, we came down and, of course, my father said, you don't be down on the street, there's going to be trouble. But it was a talk at the whole place in school about, did you see the guards that asked the others coming from the other end of the town? And absolutely, the whole thing was, well, for the young crowd, it was terrifying. We didn't know what was happening, and, of course, we had all control over what was happening, and neither had the adults, as it turned out. Some were afraid, but others excited by the commotion. Pat McGrath was also at school when the news came. In school, I thought it would never be lunchtime to get out to go and see, because we heard all these guards were coming, and they brought in a busload of policemen, and they lined the whole street while the men had moved the cable. Now, the feelings were that strong. And then Soup Doyle um, had a blunderbuss, and he went out with the blunderbuss. 
is when they're trying to move the cable and thing, you know. Tension increased during the day as the standoff continued. Hostility towards the Gardaí was strengthening, as well as driving sleet. There was violence in the air. Soon after the early morning descent of the police upon Baldinglass, a team of post office linesmen from Carlow and Waterford arrived. Their job was to disconnect the telephone cable leading into Helen Cook's and to connect the new one into Farrell's. But the Cook army stood fast on and around the concrete slab which covered the cable junction. The police were similarly afflicted. It seemed certain to them that they could not get the linesmen to the cable without a pitched battle. The guardee chose that moment to go into action. They drove a lorry, very slowly along the edge of the pavement into the crowd. There were a few scuffles between the one side and the other. There was nothing we could do, short of using violence. In a few minutes, the guardee were in possession of the slab itself. It looked bad for us just then, and there were those among the supporters of Miss Helen Cook who felt for certain that we had lost the battle. The cable was cut. Helen Cook closed and locked her front door. It seemed the battle was over. News of the battle was reported widely. Handbells and sirens warned the people of Baltinglass, County Wicklow, at 6.45am today of the arrival of 12 police cars and two lorries carrying post office engineers to move the post office from the premises of Miss Helen Cook, where it had been for 70 years, strong police protection. Farrell today told the Irish news agency, there never was any real doubt but I finally won the right to the position. Seldom has the matter of a minor local appointment engaged the minds of the public to such an extent as the appointment of Mr. Michael Farrell as postmaster in Baltinglass. Victory, Pyrrhic though it may be, rests with Mr. James Everett and his colleagues in the coalition cabinet. Miss Cook, breakfasting in bed for the first time in many years, said, I've been unjustly treated, but I'm glad the agitation is over. The Cook campaign could scarcely believe they had lost. And yes, it was. It was people very, very sad when it actually cut and went away. They, they, they fought hard and they couldn't believe it was happening. But it did happen. Some days later, a short item was carried in the Irish press. Miss H. Cook, the former acting postmistress in Baltinglass, told an Irish press reporter that she intends to sell out and bring her aunt, Miss Katie Cook, to England. Any employment I could secure in Baltinglass, she said, would not enable me to support her. And if I were to open a business, I would only cut in on the livelihood of the people who aided me so wholeheartedly in the fight. Helen's niece, Maureen Watts, was living in England at the time. She was anything but cheered with the thought that her aunt Helen might be coming there to reside with them. She was a hard woman. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't a softie, she, but I think she was hard with everyone even with the family. Maureen was keen to avoid the type of incidents she'd experienced in Baltinglass, like the time she was excluded from a family meeting at the back of the shop by her aunt Helen. And she came out to me and said, you can't come in, you're supposed to be helping in the shop. And I thought, how could you talk to me like that? You're not my mother. Around this time, the main telephone cable in Baltinglass was maliciously severed and telegraph poles began to be toppled in the middle of the night. Lawrence Errol attributes these actions to a group of unknown Cook sympathisers. During the cold grey dawn of Wednesday, as if enough had not already gone on in the Doyle, another group of unknown Cook sympathisers sawed through some more telephone poles and snipped through some more telephone wires. 
In fact, when the post office linesmen finally located the brakes, they found that while within a few miles of Balting Glass itself, seven poles were sawn off at about a foot above snow level. It was amazing that no one had heard the men who did it, and that no passerby had seen them as they pulled and pushed, pulled and pushed at their cross-cut saws in the ghostly gloom. Earl painted a localised Gombean subversive picture that was at odds with the genuine sense of injustice that the Balton Glass affair was again attracting at local and international level. The Balton Glass story had not dried up. Reporters were backfiling story. Dublin, Irish News Agency, December 13th. A new phase opened today in the Battle of Bolting Glass, which started raging two weeks ago when Michael Farrell, aged 27, was named to fill the post office position held by Miss Helen Cook, aged 50, when four telegraph poles near the village, population of 800, were sawed down during the night. Supporters of Miss Cook have denied responsibility for the act. 200 members have resigned from the local golf club to which Farrell belongs. His mother has also resigned. She is not a supporter of Miss Cook. An opinion piece in the Nina Herald took the national temperature. The Bolting Glass affair has left a bad taste in the nation's mouth. The government have not come out of the dilemma with anything approaching praise. Condemnation might be too wide a generalisation, but there are thousands of people who thought that the imaginative touch was lacking in the way the Taoiseach and the Minister for Posts and Telegraphs dealt with the matter. Years ago, the British, when they were in control of the country, built themselves a thoroughly bad reputation for following regulations through thick and thin and made themselves thoroughly unpopular. So unpopular that we fought them out of the country. And today there are scores of Irishmen alive and kicking who feel like hanging their heads in shame when they see a positive repetition of such methods. Mr. Michael Farrell, the 27-year-old postmaster, was appointed and no one questions that. But there we have Miss Helen Cook, 47-year-old post office assistant, with 14 or 15 years service in Balting Glass Post Office, now thrown out of her job. That's the rub. And that's why the people are angry. Miss Cook is more than an ex-post office assistant now in search of a job outside her own country. She is a symbol of the country's innate desire to help the underdog, and at the same time, a warning light to the government that force does not win friends within an intimate community such as we are. The war was becoming dirty and opening on multiple fronts. Cook supporter General Dennis, in true military style, formed an army council who worked hard to promote their cause. They established their own unofficial post office and even created a special stamp they would picket the GPO in Dublin. The general also recruited the services of a retired RAF fighter pilot and leased an aircraft with the purpose of bombing Dublin. With leaflets, that is. When he was alerted that this would breach so many laws, he adjusted his plan to fly the plane as low as possible over the city and to address the populace via a loud hailer. By the 15th of December 1950, all telephonic communications to the town of Bolton Glass was shut down. More telegraph poles had been chopped during the night. Cook supporter General Dennis was an extensive land and property owner. He owned the lease to the Farrell premises. He wrote to the family warning that they were in breach of terms due to structural alterations. His property was being devalued, he claimed. 
On December the 20th, 1950, the Irish Times carried a story. Miss Cook may be sent to Doyle. It was learned last night that Miss Cook, the former Baltinglass sub-postmistress, had been asked to stand as an independent candidate for a Cork constituency in the next general election. A prominent Corkman has offered to support her candidature. She told an Irish Times reporter last night that she would give the matter consideration. In Leinster House, government support was weakening and the minister, James Everett, looked to be in serious trouble. But in Bolton Glass, Helen Cook's support was going from strength to strength. The pressure on McFarrell was becoming irresistible. He was now the postmaster of a town that was incommunicado and surrounded by stumps of felled telegraph poles. The man who appointed him, Minister James Everett, was part of an administration that was falling apart. And meanwhile, his landlord, the decorated Major General, who had sided against him in the Battle of Baltinglass, was breathing down his neck. Something had to give. And it did. On the evening of the 20th of December, 1950, Michael Farrell drew a chair to his kitchen table and wrote a letter of resignation. Dejected and defeated, he was sub-postmaster of Baltinglass for all of 11 days. Dear Mr Everett, I am exceedingly sorry that my appointment as sub-postmaster of Baltinglass has caused... Having reviewed the whole position, I have now come to the conclusion that I should resign my position as sub-postmaster of Baltinglass in order that my name... I and thank you for your confidence in me. Yours sincerely, Michael Farrell. In the aftermath of Farrell's resignation, their family business suffered badly, as did the businesses of those who had supported him. Newell O'Ryan and Peter O'Kelly spoke in 1996 about their part in the boycotting of the Farrells' business. We were one of many, like, you know, because um, they had public house, grocery, drapery, and they had uh, the butcher shop. They had everything going for them. And like that, it just seemed to vanish. And then the, the next thing they went, we heard they were all selling up and going. It was sad in a way that it had to be like that. But they got many chances before it was actually cut away. They, were, they pleaded with them to give in, at the, even at the last minute, but they didn't give in. No. Michael Farrell was a victim uh, of this, I think. Had he known that this was, was going to happen, he would never have taken it on. But having taken it on, he saw it out. Until he couldn't take it anymore. An advertisement quickly appeared in the national newspapers. Baltinglass Post Office. A notice appeared on the post office at Baltinglass yesterday, inviting applications for the vacant post. Applications must be received by January 6th. And the campaign to ensure Helen Cook got the job for sure this time swung straight into action. Baltinglass. Tour begins. Cars containing members of the Baltinglass Protest Committee equipped with loudspeakers and pamphlets, left Baltinglass today on their four-day tour of Ireland. One party is covering Carlow, Kilkenny and the Waterford District. Another party will cover Mullingar, Athlone, Galway and Cavan, while a further party will do Limerick, Cork and the West. The parties will keep in touch with their headquarters in Baltinglass and will send coordinated accounts there. Meanwhile, the Farrells closed their shop and moved to Rosslare. 
On the 26th of January 1951, Helen Cook was officially reinstated as sub-postmistress of Baltinglass. By the late spring of that year, the fallout from the battle, combined with Minister Noel Brown's famous mother and child scheme, led to the collapse of Ireland's first inter-party government. The tiny town of Baltinglass, after felling dozens of telegraph poles, had helped to fell a national government. The Daily Express of London carried the news in their edition dated the 5th of May, 1951. Item from the London Daily Express, a morning newspaper of May the 5th, 1951. The political storm that began with the appointment of a postmaster in the little county Wicklow village of Baltinglass ended last night with the resignation of the era government. A general election is to be held on May the 30th. Miss Helen Cook remained on as sub-postmistress of Baltinglass until her retirement in 1962. She was then 66 years old. Now this came as something of a surprise to many in Baltinglass. At the time of the battle, her age was reported in the press to be 46, but in reality she was 55. Helen Cook might have been reluctant to reveal her age, but there was one secret she was not prepared to give up, one that she carried with her to the grave. I did play on the switchboard and uh, she was not happy. <laughs> Helen Cook's niece, Maureen Watts. We were still listening to the people's conversations, but she did too, I believe, as she heard bad language, she'd tell them off. But, uh, yeah, we had some fun there. <laughs> You've already met Maureen Watts in this documentary. If you remember, she was Helen's niece, the adopted daughter of her sister. Her memories of Helen are that of a formidable force. She had a tongue and a half on her. She, she was sharp, there was no way about it. She, there was no greeting with a kiss or love. Then uh, you did as you told, you didn't speak out of turn. Maureen's visits to Baldwin Glass to meet her aunt Helen lasted throughout her childhood. After emigrating to Australia to pursue a nursing career, her aunts, including Helen, decided to follow her and spend their retirement close to their niece. Over the years, the aunts, including Helen, passed away one by one and are buried in Australia. In the mid-1980s, Maureen got an unexpected visit from her cousin Jill. Her mother was dying in hospital and she was, she'd gone blind and she said to her before I die, and she was dying, they only had a matter of a couple of weeks. On her deathbed, Jill's mother Mary revealed a Cook family secret. And then she just came out with it, just came out of the blue. Do you know who your mother is? And I just said straight away, no. I said, well, her mother is Helen Cook and the father we're not sure of. We think he was an insurance man or something like that. And that was it. The fact that I knew who I was at long last, and that's, I think, what I wanted to know most. This was the secret Miss Helen Cook carried to her grave. Her daughter Maureen sat with her as she was dying, yet Helen never once broke her silence. We spent the night with her before she died, and that we really were surprised looking back that she wouldn't have said something before she died the next day. Maureen is aware of the Battle of Baltinglass and the support that her estranged mother received from the local people back in 1950. I mean, she was a woman of 38 
She was a Catholic in a Catholic country and she was an unmarried mother. And in those days, uh, there was a stigma. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure if they found out she had a child 17 years of age at a Catholic boarding school, they would have been shocked. I think she'd have lost a lot of support. Bolton Glass Post Office has changed hands and locations over the last 70 years. There was a time when Miss Helen Cooks was a household name, but now she's largely forgotten. Yet still, sometimes over there on the other side of the world, Maureen Cook looks into the mirror and remembers her mother in the shadows. I think I'm Helen to a T, but I was full on. I was, I was not backward in coming forward, I think. So we had things in common. I must admit, I mean, even when I buried her, I didn't shed a tear. It's just like another aunt going to the grave. And now in Ireland, we have our Helen Cook. Picketing continued at Cook's Post Office barging last yesterday. Reports of a mountain village standing brashly up against the government of ERA. Doyle uproar over dispute in Baltinglass. Reporters and photographers. The Baltinglass affair has left a bad taste in the mean corruption. Today in the Battle of Baltinglass, the government has started raging two weeks ago. Michael Farrell, age 27.